Warning, this episode contains foul language and disturbing topics, including murder, suicide, starvation, as well as mental and developmental disabilities. listening to keep it weird the podcast for all things strange and unusual the show that makes you question your existence lock your doors at night and shout holy buckets when you hear about something scary (laughs) each week we get to sit down and chat about something weird and this week is a continuation of our exploration of cases in which people disappeared without a trace There's nothing worse than losing a loved one to kidnapping or murder or some sort of foul play, except maybe not knowing what happened to them. More than 600,000 people go missing every year in America alone, and although a majority of these cases do seem to be solved, a relatively small portion of the victims are found alive. So today we are sharing more cases in which the fate of one or more people remains a mystery to this day. So get your DNA kits or your magnifying glass, depending on what era you're investigating in, and get ready for some frustrating news. My name is Ashley, and this is my co-host, Lauren. Hello, weirdos. Hi, guys. And today, we're getting right smack dab into it, because I have a flight to catch tomorrow. Uh, Not flying over water. So (laughs) actually, by the time you guys hear this, I will safely, if all goes well, I will safely be back in Los Angeles. Yay. We love to hear it. Knock on wood. I am very happy you're not (laughs) flying over a giant body of water. That makes me feel very good. Things can still go wrong. True. Not a fan of flying, but... um, Me either, but let's speak goodness into existence. You're going to make it safely back to us. It's going to be a fucking dark episode if I die on that plane. Oh my god. It will be. Lord, please don't. I need you. Yeah, we'll just not think about it. Let's just talk about something horrible that makes us feel sad. Yeah, Why don't let's you start move, today. <laughs> move to another horrifying topic, please. Yeah, please. Okay, yeah, we're back with some vanishing without a trace stories, guys, mm-hmm. and I have a wild one that has some like some strange things going on in it. I mean, they all do. That's why they're mysterious. Right. But there's some like weird parallels in the story. And I was like, how have I never heard of this? Okay. So there's a man named Keith Reinhard. He moved to Silver Plume in Colorado from Chicago. I'm just all about Chicago today. But no this kidding. more takes place in Colorado. But oh, he's a kidding. Chicago man. So, you know, respect. Um, He moved to Colorado from Chicago in the summer of 1988 when he was 49 years old with the goal of getting in shape by mountain climbing and starting to write his first great novel. Nice. I know. I was like, I like this. He was on sabbatical from his job of sports writing back in Chicago. I think he wrote for a couple of different newspapers around there and maybe even for a magazine at one point. So, you know, like he had a great job, but he wanted to take a few months off to move to Colorado before he turned 50 and just do these things on his bucket list. 
He also wanted to try running an antique shop geared towards summer tourists. He was giving that a shot while he was there in the summer as well. If it turned out to be successful, then he was going to go back to Chicago, grab his wife, and relocate there permanently, because then they could just start a fresh life in Colorado. Part of the reason Keith chose Silver Plume is because one of his oldest friends named Ted ran a cafe there, and they had been friends for about 40 years, and Ted has been quoted saying that he could tell Keith was very stressed out about turning 50 when he arrived in Colorado, and that he really badly needed this time away. Not that he was having problems with his wife by any means, but just like time to himself right. to really figure things out, check things off his bucket list, etc. So yeah, it's also the time for midlife crisis. Yes. You know, what have I done with my life? This isn't what I imagined it would be. Something's exactly. got to give. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, you can totally understand this guy about to turn 50. Who am I? What are my successes? Jean so Valjean. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Jean Valjean. <laughs> So, yeah, his friend, who knows him inside and out, they're basically brothers, was like, oh, yeah, I could see the stress in Keith. I was excited yeah. that he came out here hoping that he could, you know, figure some things out. So then a little bit more backstory. Nine months prior to Keith's move and opening this little antique shop, Keith's shop had been a bookstore. And there was a man named Tom, Tom Young who owned the bookstore. And strangely enough, this man had mysteriously disappeared along with his dog. Hmm. He never returned back to town. No one had a clue where he went. He had only had the shop for a year. And then one day he said he started telling people that he was going to take a vacation to Europe. And then he vanished. And so initially people said, oh, he, he took that trip to Europe. I mean, he kind of left suddenly, but I guess that's where he is. But then three weeks went by and people started to become suspicious because he had not returned. They hadn't heard anything from him. No phone calls, no letters. It became very suspicious with his absence. So he officially became a missing person, but no one had any information of where he could possibly be. So Keith Reinhard moves to town, becomes obsessed by this case, especially because he's in the shop that Tom once was. So he yeah. loves investigating this unexplained disappearance. He's talking to everyone in town, trying to get more information on Tom, and eventually Keith decides to base his novel on Tom Young because he's so fascinated by it. So he begins to write, and he creates a character named Guy Gypsum, who was a combination of himself and Tom. Family and friends believed that Keith was getting a little lost in the novel and was struggling to see the difference between fact and fiction mm -hmm. and was just really becoming this book in every way. It's a real secret window situation. Exactly. So on July 31st, 1988, 10 months after Tom Young disappeared, two hunters did find the remains of Tom and his dog in oh. the mountains near Silver Plume. So he was not the missing person that you may have thought was the main character of the story. He was found. <laughs> Unfortunately, he had died, and so did his doggy, which made me sad. Did it say how? They each had a bullet wound to the head. No. So Clear Creek County Horrible. Sheriff's Department was the first to the scene, and the sheriff was quoted saying that they were up there exploring the territory for bow hunting season, which was coming up, and that's when they found the remains. Also found at the scene was a revolver, and in an investigation prior to them finding the remains, they did find out that Tom had purchased a gun four days before he was last known to be seen. So they closed the Tom Young case, ruled it as a suicide, both by the coroner's office and the sheriff's department. Oh. Goodbye. That was the end of that. 
And though that was the official statement, no one was buying it. They said it didn't sound like Tom in any way, shape, or form. He was acting so bizarre before he left, but not in a suicidal way. It was more like he was almost like fearful of someone or like stressed about something. So it is more believed by people that know him that he was murdered. And it is also believed that he would never kill his dog that he loved more than anything. I was going to say, if it was a suicide, he would have, you know, been like, hey, can you watch my dog for a day while I do this thing? Agreed. Like, that dog was his life, his best friend, yeah. his everything. So it everyone thinks it's super shady and that, like, maybe he was in trouble with someone and he bought the gun as defense but then got killed. But, you know, they said, hey, he bought a gun and... You know, it's yeah. just one shot to his head, so he did it. And it's like, yeah, I mean, fair enough. And if you didn't find any other evidence, you have to do what you have to do. But always felt a little shady to the people of Silver Plume, Colorado. So then, one week after Tom's body was found, Keith walked through Silver Plume, telling everyone he could find that he was going to climb to the top of the nearby Pendleton Mountain. One of his last stops before the climb was at his old buddy Ted's cafe, and Ted said that Keith came in, told him he was going to make it to the top of the mountain if it's the last thing he ever did, and he was even joking around saying, you know, if I don't come back, make sure you call rescue, like, call the park rangers. He was laughing, he was smiling, and he seemed very, very determined to get to the top of this mountain. And that was the last time his buddy Ted ever saw him. He was last seen walking toward Pendleton Mountain at 4.30 p.m. on August 7th, which is very late in the day to begin a hike. And this specific mountain is like, it's a very difficult, known, like, six to eight hour hike if you're going to go up and all the way down. And so had he been hiking since he lived there and, like... Because he, he hadn't even lived there for a year? Is that what no, you said? No, he'd been there. At this point, he'd been there maybe a month and a half. He'd barely been yeah. there. He'd mostly... hiking by yourself also. No. He was hiking alone, and he was just in, like, jeans, a flannel, and tennis shoes. Okay. That's what he was last seen in. Like, he had no gear. Yeah, he man. had no backpack. Like, he... It was very weird. And mostly, while he had been in town, he'd been doing, like, either very easy hikes, or he was mostly just writing his book and trying to run that antique shop. So, like, yeah. this was very strange. So, 4.30 p.m. on August 7th, way too late in the day to do this hike, and that night... Keith Reinhardt did not return back to town. So the next day, helicopters were called to search the mountain, and back on the ground, there were more than 125 men and over a dozen trained dogs combing the terrain for seven days. They were searching everywhere. The Alpine rescue team was the one on the case, and they, one of the heads of the Alpine rescue team named Charlie Shemansky, was quoted as saying, the Reinhardt search was like looking for the proverbial needle in a haystack. This haystack is 3,000 vertical feet of 60-degree slope. This was about as difficult a search terrain as we cover. We were at a real disadvantage because Keith went into the mountains wearing no more than jeans, a flannel shirt and tennis shoes, with no backpack and no equipment, and typically a search subject will leave lots of clues for us to trace. Keith didn't leave any clues at all, and he didn't have anything with him to leave behind. He also said in 30 years of operation, the Colorado Alpine Rescue Team had found every single person they ever searched for, whether dead or alive, they always found people, but they did not find Keith. There was no trace of him, no clues, nothing. 
Some have concluded that Keith Reinhardt and Tom Young were both murdered, noting that both men rented the same space to run their shops, and perhaps they both came across information someone didn't want them to know within the shop. Another theory is that Keith planned his own disappearance. Even his own daughter Tiffany, who was one of the people that believed Keith had gone way too deep into his writing and didn't know what was reality anymore, she thought that maybe he wanted to disappear to truly understand Tom Young and write a better character for his book and just get more fully immersed into it. So that was kind of her belief. But his wife, Carolyn, disagreed, saying that this theory couldn't be right. He loved his life way too much. He really cared about the people around him. He talked too much about the future. Like, he would not have just gone off the grid and disappeared. Like, he he had his wits about him. He wanted to come back to us, blah, blah, blah. So... She thought this was just crazy and something had to have happened to him. The only other little hints that we really have from Keith's life that people are trying to hold on to because there are just truly no other clues are that um, Keith Reinhardt's friends recall he was fascinated by the idea of visiting West Virginia. So they thought maybe somehow, like, even though he was seen going up the mountain, maybe just nobody saw him come down and he left and went to West Virginia, but that's pretty far-fetched. Um, investigators I feel like he did, maybe would have told oh, a person. Yeah, at least one person. And, like, why wouldn't he have told his family? Because, again, it doesn't yeah. sound like he was completely disconnected. So, yeah. I don't know. But friends were urging investigators to go look there, although not knowing specifically in the entire state where Keith could be or who he would even know there, it really didn't help the search in any way. And the only other clue was that Keith had attended a party the night before he disappeared. And witnesses say he spent a very good deal of time talking to a woman named Greta ah. or Gretchen. They're not sure it was one of those who is most likely from Denver. So she's still very mysterious, which is unfortunate because if we had a name, we could maybe have a little bit of a connection here. But it's either Greta or Gretchen from Denver. Police really wanted to talk to this woman, still do to this day. There's still, you know, a search for her. But clearly, because so little is known about her, it has been impossible to find. Could this woman have the answers to where Keith could be? Is he just chilling in a forest in West Virginia? Was he murdered on his hike, but this time his body was taken away and hidden because of what happened with Tom Young? These people had to cover their tracks a little better. I don't know. And we probably will never know. It's over 30 years later, and there are basically zero leads. He truly vanished without a trace. That is one thing that I was thinking immediately especially since he had just had sort of a midlife crisis and was like ah, i gotta get out of here i gotta do something different blah 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 and yeah. then he has like this new life in this new town where he's doing this new thing and he decides he's gonna write this story and like it seems very exciting because something nefarious seemed to have happened to this guy and then maybe right. somewhere along the way he meets a girl and maybe he knew that girl long before that party Right. And their plan, you know, his plan was, you know, I, I don't want to be a, a husband and a father anymore. I want something more. And yeah. they planned it. And it's very convenient that he stopped in to his friend's place and was like, hey, if, they, if I don't come back, call the uh, exactly. call the search team. And then the fact that he made sure to doesn't say that come to back yep. and he's in jeans and he's starting his hike at 430 p.m. I think he skipped town. Agreed. Which is why, like, I was laughing about the West Virginia thing, but I do think he left and went somewhere mm -hmm. else. I just don't, I feel like the West Virginia thing just seemed a little crazy to me. But 
Yeah, he definitely could have skipped town. Or I, I kind of believe both, that he could have been involved with some shady people the same way Tom was. I could totally mm-hmm. see, like, that he was off to meet these people, and that's another reason he told his friend, like, hey, if I don't come back, like, please tell somebody. Even though he was trying to joke about it, he meant it in a way, because maybe he thought he was going to go out and get killed that night, or maybe he was romantically involved with Greta Gretchen, whoever she may be. Greta Gretchen. And they skipped town. I could see both things being plausible, because in either case, he wouldn't have been properly dressed for the hike, because in both cases, he was never doing that hike. And in both Mm -hmm. cases, he would want to talk to his friend Ted before and be like, yo, send a search team. I'm not going to make it back. Definitely. Yeah. If you don't see me, I'm somewhere up there. And it's like, "Mm, I don't know. That seems weird to me. And also, you know, uh, maybe Tom was murdered. I don't think it had anything to do with the shop. Yeah. It's like, what would be in the shop that like, that would lead two different people to... Someone like carving the wall, like Justin's bad. <laughs> right. You know I mean, I, mean? I agree. Like, I don't know what would have popped up in the shop. I think it was just such a bizarre situation Connection. that the two men yeah. were in that shop and then both vanished, even though one of them was technically found. But it, what happened? What went on? I don't know. Yeah, that's weird. And that's quite a track record for that um, that the team, that team? search team. Yeah, the rescue team. Be like, we found every single person. It's like, fucking, we need you in every other United States state (laughs) then, too, because there's so many missing people in parks and national parks. Yeah, it's usually hikers. It's Mm -hmm. like people going out for a nature walk that are missing. Yeah, they have an amazing track record. And I mean, of course, they find remains. They find dead people all the time, but they always find the person. So to not find Keith was strange very bizarre and it sounds like they were doing like quite a combing of all of the land so it's very strange i mean keith could still be hanging out somewhere we don't know he'd be very old though yeah he would and that was his first novel he was writing he wasn't yes. a novelist before that i was gonna say no, it'd be crazy like he if he had sports. yeah if he had had like more novels and we someone like found a comparison to this other author that was like just like his writing and we found out it was like stephen king (laughs) that would be a wild (laughs) we find out that he's like this author that lives somewhere in maine maybe that right he's just been using a a fake name (laughs) yeah the, the ages don't really work out with stephen king but i think that would be a wild story Ugh, I wish that was the truth. That would be really cool. Yeah, and then we wouldn't have to feel bad for anyone. Yeah. <laughs> Let's make that into a movie, though. That's the real thing. Nobody steal it. TM, TM, TM. <laughs> <laughs> kind of reminds me of, like, for whatever reason, the talented Mr. Ripley. Ooh, yeah. Just constantly, like, taking on new personalities. Yeah, and just killing like, when he has on to. Whoever he meets and getting people out of his when way. He has to. Yes, Ashley. It's a great movie. I know. It's true. That is a good one. I haven't watched it in so long, but Jude Ooh, Law you should rewatch is so it. handsome. Mm-hmm. It holds up. Phil Syhoff is really good in that movie. I forgot he's in it too, because he's mm-hmm. the first one to kind of be like, you're the weirdest dude yeah. ever. <laughs> what yeah, he's, is your the, he's the first guy that like catches on and is like, something's not yeah. right here. Off, this guy's bro. weird. Yeah. 
Which and he Matt, is. He's young weird Matt Damon just flexing his mm. flexing his chops. I know he was such a good actor. I mean, he still is, but like to be such a such a young, yeah. handsome man and still have the talent, we just love Oof. it. We watched To Die For the other day for the millionth time, but um, Do I, know I don't know what if you've to seen die it. For is? Uh, it's a Gus Van Zant movie starring Nicole Kidman, Joaquin Phoenix. Oh yes, I haven't yeah. seen it, but I know oh, exactly girl, what you're talking it's about. It's so good. It's on Hulu right now for anyone who wants to watch it. It's uh, based a little bit on the true story of, um, oh shit, I don't remember her name. Smart? No. The woman that slept with her high school student. Um, oh. And was like manipulating him to do shit. I, I can't think of mean. the actual woman. Yeah, I know who you mean. But Joaquin Phoenix in that movie, it's such, a, such an amazing performance. And he, at the time that that movie was filmed, was like 19 or 20. That's and that insane. just always blows my mind. People can be that talented at that age. Yeah, that talented and that natural. I mean, his brother was the exact same. River Phoenix was, That's true. I mean, stand by me. He's a literal child and he's yeah. incredible. And phenomenal. Ugh, gone too soon. Yeah, everyone should watch uh, To Die For, especially if you like true crime. And it's yes, filmed please. sort of like, it's filmed sort of like a mockumentary. Okay. So that's really fun. And Joe made a, for this will be funny for those of you who have seen it, Joe made a really funny observation that it's essentially like a Ryan Murphy directed, like it's very gay <laughs> in the best way. It's like oh, very good. gay, very like corny, but also like super dark and twisted. And I couldn't stop thinking about the whole time. And we recast it in our brains as a Ryan Murphy, yeah, picture. So we were using all the like American Horror Story actors. Sarah Paulson, exactly. <laughs> we were like Evan Peters would be perfect for the Joaquin Phoenix role, and yeah, it yep. was great. So everyone oh, watch I To Die For because it's um, it's a good time. Yes, I shall. Hi, my name's Pete, and I'm Scott, and we host the podcast Movies, movies That, that Made Us Gay. Gay. We're the type of kid who preferred watching movies like Romeo and Michelle and Steel Magnolias when the other boys were watching movies like Rambo. Did Batman and Robin's anatomically correct suits make you feel a certain type of way? Did you have a vision board of Nicole Kidman's wigs on your bedroom wall? If any of these sound familiar, then this is the podcast for you. At Movies That Made Us Gay, we take a look at the movies from our past that shaped our queer little lives and turned us into the well-rounded homos you hear before you. We cover all genres of movies like buddy comedies, horror movies, and erotic thrillers with fun hot takes like episode 52 on The Mummy. Rachel Weiss, who is serving face. Super fierce. She is serving face. She's walking the face category and she may be snatching. I mean, if Rachel is walking the face category, Patricia Vasquez as Anaxuna Moon is definitely walking the body category. Yes, Patricia Vasquez is serving body. She is like doing the five elements of Vogue as she's walking down that golden hallway. She's posing the house down when she's like in nothing but body paint. she's leaning on like the on the statue when, when the, the kid, pharaoh walks the in. the little kitty cat? Listen to Movies That Made Us Gay on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you ready to get really sad? Oh, gosh. I mean, I guess. Ugh, <laughs> mentally. I tried to mentally prepare because I know this story is I'm not so good. But sorry. Ooh, the little I know of it already makes my stomach turn. But yes, let's let's go. Okay. Um, I'm going to be telling the story of the Yuba County Five. And I'm a, I know that I always put trigger warnings before these episodes, but just an extra trigger warning. This case deals with 
intellectual disabilities and mental health issues, as well as um, sexual assault, threats of violence against a child, drug use, and just like really dark and disturbing images. And I also want to say that I took specific care to find the correct language to use in describing these men and their capacities. But if anything that I say is incorrect or insensitive, I apologize and I'll absolutely accept and appreciate any corrections you may have. So uh, the TLDR version, for anyone who doesn't know what that <laughs> means, it's the too long, <laughs> too long don't read version of uh-huh. this in case you're like, I don't have the capacity to deal with I that have to right read- now. I have to read the TLDR many times (laughs) when I'm very sleepy. (laughs) It's like, just tell me what happens. (laughs) Basically, five men from Yuba City with varying degrees of intellectual disabilities disappeared one night in 1978 after their car went off the road in a snowstorm and four of their remains were found months later in circumstances that do not make sense. And the fifth was never found. Hmm. That's the TLDR. So... These five men were Jack Madruga, Ted Weyer, Bill Sterling, Jack Hewitt, and Gary Matthias. And they were often referred to as the boys in like news articles and retellings of this story. But it's important to know they were fully grown men. Yes. They are always called boys. You're They're right. always called boys. And I, I assume it has to, it's just like a thing that people just aren't thinking about when they talk about them because they, they had the, the mental capacities of much younger people but they're men um capable grown strong men so i actually first want to tell you about them because one i think it's the most important part of true crime the victims were real people with real families and friends and lives and sometimes we tend to forget that when we start telling their stories yes and two some of their picadillos can come into play when trying to figure out the mystery so All five men met each other at the Gateway Program, which was a vocational program where they could participate in activities and learn trades. So they could, you know, find jobs in their community and also just like interact with each other and make friends. Uh And they all bonded over their mutual love of basketball. And they were all on the Gateway basketball team. Love it. The night they disappeared, they were actually at a basketball game at Chico State, and they were excited for a big tournament game of their own the next morning. The game the next day would have led them closer to qualifying for the upcoming Paralympics. And if they had won, they would have gotten a free trip to Los Angeles and an opportunity to meet the actress Sally Struthers from All in the Family. So they were extremely excited. They had all repeatedly reminded their parents not to let them oversleep. Their jerseys, their uniforms were laid out and ready for the next day. They wouldn't have missed this game for anything in the world. And that's important to remember when you hear this story. Okay. A lot of people hear about the story and assume they were traditionally mentally challenged. But I'm going to tell you a bit about them individually so you can kind of get an idea of what they were like and what they had the ability to do for themselves. So... Ted Weyer was 32. He was described as friendly and personable, but did have the tendencies of a child. He had recently left his job at a snack bar at the request of his family because they felt that he was getting a little too overwhelmed with the pressures of the job. Like a normal day at work was fine, but if it was a stressful day at work, he kind of didn't know how to handle it. Yeah. But he was, for all intents and purposes, fully capable of taking care of himself. 
he would just do things that his brother called silly. Like one time he spent a hundred dollars on pencils because money wasn't really a concept he understood. Oh gosh. But honestly, do any of us really understand the concept of money? <laughs> that is very fair. Like, yes. I struggle truly. with it all the dang time. Jack Hewitt, or Jackie Hewitt, was 24, and some would say he was the most severely impacted of the five men. He had a okay. very, very low IQ, but he was also very friendly, very sociable. He was particularly close with Ted, who I just talked about. And this seems like a weird detail again, but it's going to come into play later. Ted made all of his phone calls for him, oh, which Jackie hated. He couldn't do himself, but it was just a trigger for him. Um, it's a trigger for me, too, anxiety-wise. I don't like making phone calls. That's why, like, every time someone's like, you should do sales. I'm like, you should mind your own business because I won't call anyone ever. So I was going to say I'm with you on that. And when I call the doctor or the dentist or anyone <laughs> I have to make an appointment with, I'm one of those people that has to write a script beforehand yeah. because I will just panic and tense up and not know what to say if I just try to improvise. Yeah, I'll at least so like I, write notes, like mention this, yep. mention that. Yeah, I have to have Don't my bullet points of what I'm trying to get across, <laughs> try to sound like a normal person. It's so special. Every time I have to call the pharmacy <laughs> to get medication, it's always like, I am Lauren Pills. And they're like, hello? I, I, I just really God struggle. forbid I have to leave a message. Oh, gosh. My it's got to be a, a dire situation <laughs> for me to leave a message because it is rambling. I get that. So then Jack Madruga, he was 30. He was the owner of the Mercury Montego that the men were driving the night of their disappearance. He was super protective of his car. He wouldn't let anyone else drive it. He had his driver's license and, and was arguably the most independent of the group. He's generally considered to have been, quote unquote, slow as opposed to, quote unquote, handicapped. He had okay. served in the army for two years during Vietnam uh, before receiving a medical discharge. He had actually a small injury. He had recently been laid off from his job as a dishwasher, but not because he did anything wrong. It was more a matter of like the restaurant cutting people. And mm -hmm. um, like I said, he was considered slow, but he could and did manage his own finances. He was perfectly capable. Yeah. And obviously had a driver's license, drove his own car. Bill Sterling was 29, also very friendly, and was usually compared to Ted, but was known as less outgoing. He was a little bit more of a homebody. Um, he had worked as a dishwasher as well at an Air Force base until his mother made him quit because she discovered that the airmen were stealing his money, which is just Ugh. like, oh come no, on how those are truly the most evil people on the planet. Of a person, to me. do you have to fucking be? Yep. To Taking steal money of someone. <laughs> from someone like Bill Sterling. Yeah, that's such garbage. That makes me really mad. Yeah. One more important note on Bill is that he was not the outdoorsy type. He did not enjoy hiking or parks or anything like that. He actively avoided no. it and sometimes would have uh, little mini breakdowns or freakouts when, uh, when he would have to do something that involved Outside. that like one time his dad took him fishing actually up by where their car was found at one point um which came into play but uh was immediately dismissed because he did it once he had such a horrible reaction to it he never went again so oh gosh that is not an like important being note to remember yeah 
And then finally, we have Gary Matias, and I'm not going to spend, and honestly, guys, it could be Mathias. I don't know, but it's M-A-T-T-H-I-A-S. Gary, I'm going to spend a little bit more time with because throughout the investigation, a lot more was reported on him because he ended up being a suspect at one point. Spoiler alert, but I will get to that. Mm -hmm. So... Gary was kind of the new guy of the group. Like the other four were inseparable. They'd known each other for years. But at this point, um, Gary had just kind of joined up with them. And he, they became fast friends, but he was kind of new. He was 25. Um, he was not intellectually disabled, but he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, which is what he was, um, why he was involved with the Gateway uh, program. Yeah, and And the paranoid schizophrenia had gotten him into trouble several times before long before when he was much younger he had enlisted in the u.s army but was discharged before he could actually you know serve as soon as he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia basically what happened is he went awol off of the base and then when a police officer captured him and got him in custody he punched the cop in the face oh, uh which boy. as yep. everyone knows you do not do that's and, not allowed. Um, yeah. And that's actually when they went on, he uh, underwent more psychological evaluations and they uncovered his condition. Gotcha. That same month uh, before he was charged, but after he was arrested, he was staying in his cousin's house and groped his cousin's wife when she was semi-incapacitated on medication. Oh, Gary. He ended up spending eight months in jail after the assault charge. The uh, assault charge punching the officer. There was no charges actually when he um, sexually assaulted his his cousin's wife. There were no charges in that. No, case? she didn't press charges, uh, especially oh, after nice he was her. just recently diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, and it was like a yeah. bad time, and it was just sort of like, hey, sure. like, you know. Following his release, he had another run-in with law enforcement because he had gotten into drug use when he was in prison, and it continued afterwards. And one night when he was high, he threatened to kill the three-year-old daughter of a couple he knew. Oh, my God. So it's safe to say that he was troubled, but... Very. And this is a big but. At some point in 1971, he began treatment. And uh, by the time of his disappearance in 1978, he had been stable for years. He held down a job with his stepfather. He was being treated on an outpatient basis with medication and counseling. And he was considered by his physicians to be one of their success cases. Okay. Well, that's good news. Yeah. And he would still have episodes sometimes. But according to his stepbrother, he was never violent. He would just go for walks. And yeah. not like strolls like he would walk for miles and miles and miles and his brother-in-law said one time he walked for 540 miles when he had Jeez. sort of a um i don't know i think they, they kept calling them, them episodes like his episodes were very violent before he yeah. was medicated and then after he was medicated it was just sort of i he don't had know to, like just, escape yeah man so, that's like forrest gump status walking i know for that that's, long. that's <laughs> incredible so, okay, let's get to the night of. The five men got into Jack's car and set off for Chico, California from their hometown of Yuba City. The drive was about 50 miles each way. The boys' favorite team, UC Davis, had won the game in Chico, so they celebrated for about half an hour and then started on their journey home around 10 p.m. They were seen by people at the game and also by the clerk of a convenience store around this time, and that is the last confirmed report we have of them being seen. Aye. 
So due to the dependence that their sons had on them, most of the parents stayed up waiting for them to return home. It was, you know, it's just like if you're a high school student sort of coming home after a game, your parents wait up for you. And uh, when they didn't come home, they immediately called the police and the police immediately began searching the following morning. The search started along the route they would have taken to the game, but there was no sign of them there. Three days later, on the 28th, the Montego was discovered in the forest near Oroville Quincy Road, which was 70 miles away from Chico. So far out of the way. Not anywhere near the route the men would have taken. It was up in a remote area of the Plumas National Forest on a high mountain dirt road that was far out of their way. And the car was actually spotted by a deputy on the 25th, three days earlier, but cars left in that spot were not uncommon, and the bulletin on these missing men hadn't been seen by that police officer. Like, as soon as he saw right. it, he was like, oh, shit, I remember seeing that car. Okay. And he went back yeah, up I guess there, he and the car was still there. Yeah. He wouldn't have known about it, because it was so far out of the way, which yeah. is crazy. Wasn't even on his radar. The car was found stuck in the snow, but not stuck stuck. It easily, easily could have been pushed out. There um, there were uh, tire marks as though they had tried to drive out of the spot, but it didn't. there was no indication that they had tried to push the car out of the spot. But five grown men, authorities say, easily could have pushed it out. Okay, so very weird. Very strange. Uh, and there was no damage to the vehicle. The car also had plenty of gasoline and a live battery. The keys were missing, suggesting they were taken with the men when they left with the intention of returning. The undercarriage had no dents, gouges, or even mud scrapes, not even on its low-hanging muffler, even though it had been driven a long distance up a mountain road with a hundred bumps and ruts, which suggested to the authorities that the driver had either been extremely cautious, which that checks out because we know that he was very protective of his car, uh-huh. or had a familiarity with the road, of which Jack did not have. Right. But the car was also unlocked and a window was rolled down when it was found. And Jack's family said he never would have left his car that unsecure. Doesn't matter where he was. Ooh. Yeah. And there was no sign of any of the men. So remember I told you the last confirmed sightings of the men were from the game and from the convenience store clerk. Yes. Well, we have two additional sightings that are unconfirmed, as in like we might not have been them, but could have definitely been them from that night as well that could be important. Okay. One was a man named Joseph Scones. Uh, Scones was driving up that same road the men would have been on to survey the snowfall for a planned vacation with his family when he suffered a minor heart attack around 5.30 p.m. Um, This was on the 24th when they went missing and essentially ran into a ditch. Cannot imagine how painful that would be. And what happened is he decided to spend the night in his warm car rather than attempting to push his car out or walk all the way back. It was like eight miles back to the lodge in the oh, snow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Probably would have and done he had just same. had a heart attack, so he was right. like... The, and this is 1978, no cell phone, so he was like, my best chance at surviving this is just sleeping in my car tonight. So, yeah. later that night, Joseph reported seeing headlights behind him, and he looked back and shouted for help. He said that he saw a group of three to five men and one woman with a baby... In the shadow of the headlights, he didn't see any faces. Uh, 
A woman with a baby. A woman with a baby. Okay. All right. He called for help a few minutes and uh, the headlights of the car just went off and he couldn't see them anymore, but reported seeing flashlights afterwards. Later that night, he believed he saw a pickup truck behind him and then pulling past him slowly, but he admitted that his account may not be fully accurate because he was literally delirious from pain at this point. Yeah, I'm sure. So he's like, this is what I remember, but I don't even know. Yeah. Ted's mother, when she heard about this guy, said he never would have ignored calls for help and would have absolutely gone to Joseph if he'd heard him. Uh-huh. And was able to help him. She even recalled the time that Ted and Bill had helped someone they knew get to the hospital after overdosing on Valium. Ugh, so, of course, because they were wonderful people. They seemed like no one really had a bad thing to say about them. And the thing is, is like so many people chalk this whole thing up and, and it gets weirder, obviously. But so many people chalk this whole thing up of, of them just like not being capable to care for themselves. And it's like it seems. But they could. Like. Everything they ever did leading up to this, they were able to care for themselves. Well, yeah, absolutely. So, it sounds like they were very capable of taking care of themselves and were careful and with their people. belongings, too. Yeah. And yeah, and cared for others. So that is very silly. But continue. The, the other unconfirmed sighting came from a convenience store clerk about 30 miles from where the car was discovered in a place called Brownsville on the 26th, which would be two days after they disappeared. Jeez, What? The reason that this was taken seriously at all is that Ted's brother said that her description of their behavior was was totally credible. Um, like mm. like it seemed like them, the physical description, and she had seen a physical a photo of them, and that's why she called the police and were like, "Yeah, they were in here." And yeah, the police were like, "On the twenty sixth, and she was like, "Yeah," and like the owner of the convenience store um, confirmed it too. So that was huh. strange. Um, Very. The only thing that didn't make sense is that uh, her description of what happened, she said they came in, they all had some like burritos and donuts and stuff, and that the driver of, they came in, um, the men arrived in a red pickup truck, and the driver of the pickup truck did not come inside. Huh. So she she couldn't say anything about the driver. But um, the only thing that didn't make sense was that she said Jack was on the payphone and made a call, which if you remember what I said earlier, would be super out of character because Ted yeah, made all of his calls for him. Call. Yeah. And they were like, are you sure? And she was like, yeah, he was the one that was on the payphone. And that was just like, mm, mm, okay, yeah, that doesn't, doesn't seem really right. Okay. I'm going to take a drink of water because this is where it gets really sad. Okay. Months later, on June 4th, 1978, after the snow melted, Ted Weyer's body was found. Um, his remains were found in a forest service trailer nearly 20 miles from the Montego, from the car. He had lost nearly half of his body weight, was ridden with frostbite. He had a beard indicating that he had lived for 13 weeks. What? He had been alive That's for wild. 13 weeks. No. Months out there. He was found wrapped in eight sheets. He was missing his shoes. He was on a bed. Like he was found uh, on a bed wrapped in eight sheets, missing his shoes. His feet were completely frostbitten and showed signs of gangrene. And on the table beside him was his ring, his wallet, a half-burned candle, and a watch that was not his own. No one knows who the watch belonged to, but they assumed it was one of the other guys. 
Everything about that is just so bizarre. And so sad. Mm-hmm. And this is where it's very strange. There was no evidence that he had attempted to leave the trailer or access any of the essentials that the trailer was stocked with. What? There was enough food in there to last all five men over a year. But yet they were yet like he thin starved and had to death. Like, yeah. What? So there was food that was in the trailer and not locked up, like not locked away, like in the cabinets that had been eaten. But like I said, there was enough food for all of the men to survive for up for to a year. And there was a fireplace, but there was no evidence of a fire ever being started, despite having matches and plenty of magazines to start a fire. Yeah, just no attempt at survival doesn't make any sense. And there was a heater they could access nearby for the men to stay warm until Hmm. they were rescued, but it wasn't touched. Wow. And Ted himself had died of a combination of starvation and hypothermia. About halfway between the trailer and their car, the remains of Bill and Jack were found scattered. The theory from, and scattered as in like probably animals got to it, not scattered as in like someone was trying to scatter. Yeah. The theory from law enforcement for this was that they had attempted to walk back to the car, but one was too tired to keep going or too cold to keep going and the other decided to stay with him and they both died of exposure. The absolute uh, most tragic moment of the search, once once Ted's body was found, they got people out there and they were searching the whole area and they started to find all the other guys. But um, yeah. Jack Hewitt Sr. was the one who discovered his own son, Oh, which is just... I cannot even think about that. That's horrible. Uh, he discovered his, um, his son's sneakers and jeans and... Alongside it was his backbone. <sighs> My God. Other of his remains will be found later, and authorities say he also died of exposure of hypothermia. Hmm. Despite extensive searching of the entire area for hundreds of miles, there's never been any sign of Gary, the fifth member of the group. Authorities seem to think that he stayed with Ted in the trailer until Ted died and then he left because his shoes were near the trailer. And remember, um, Ted's shoes were missing. So what right. they think happened is they think that Gary might have his his feet might have been swelling from for whatever reason. And he might have swapped out his shoes with um, Ted's shoes. And that's why Ted's so shoes he, were gone. OK, he walked off with them and left. His yeah. Own. And if you think about what his brother-in-law said, like, if he didn't have access to his medication for schizophrenia, and then he had an episode, yeah. he could have just started walking and walking, and who knows how far he ended up. I was going to say, he if he had done 500 miles mm-hmm. before, this was probably nothing, and maybe he just went on a journey. It's very, very cold. I, I don't think he would make it that far, but... Right. Now... Most people explain this mystery, like I said... As the men simply did not have the capacity to think critically or rationally in this stressful situation. And yeah, that might have fit two or three of the men. But Gary and Jack should have been absolutely able to make sound decisions under stress. Yeah. Including just staying in the car until morning when it was warmer outside and then pushing it out of the ditch. Like they had a, a quarter tank of gas. 
Mm-hmm. They could have left the car running and, and the heater worked in the car. You know what I mean? Like just getting right. out of they the car so in the first options. place in the dark just didn't make any sense. It didn't even make any sense that they were up there. But then to get out of the car didn't make right. sense. And how far away was the trailer that they were living in? 20 miles. Yeah, that it just, ugh, none of it makes any sense. And like how long were they in the trailer? Did they just get to the trailer and like they brought Ted in and he died like uh, no one knows how long they were they we couldn't yeah. by the evidence couldn't determine if they had been in the trailer the whole time or yeah if they had just arrived to yeah. basically collapse and die but even like Jack and Gary they would have they would have known to turn on the heat in the trailer and to eat the food that they had easy access to because a lot of people who work with individuals that suffer from mental inc- incapabilities have stated that it makes sense that they wouldn't use the heater or eat the food because the heater was behind a lock that they would have had to have broken and the food wasn't there. So they knew not to steal. Right. Like even if their own lives depended on it, they knew that was wrong and you weren't supposed to do that. So they wouldn't. Sometimes you like only think like so literally about things in those situations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But like I said, the two of the men would have had the ability to realize this was a situation in which they would have been forgiven for doing what they needed to do to survive. Yeah. So that didn't make sense. Um, Also, Gary, the fifth member, is frequently considered to have played a more sinister role in this. But part of me thinks that's just the stigma of a mental illness like paranoid schizophrenia. As opposed to, because yes, he had gotten in trouble with the law. Yes, he had done some really horrible things. But that was nine years prior, before he had been treated for his mental illness. And he had like no, And but the thing is, if he didn't have access to medication for a week, you know, he may have had a That's the thing that makes it more plausible. Yeah. I do want to mention one other thing. A woman who claims to be Jackie Hewitt's sister-in-law has been outspoken on the case online, uh, different Reddit forums, and commenting in places like the Charlie Project, which for anyone who doesn't know, um, the Charlie Project is a nonprofit that profiles cold case missing people specifically. They don't attempt to solve them. It's basically a database that catalogs as much information as possible about as many cases as possible as an aid for the public and for law enforcement to help solve cases. So smart. Yeah, many of which have been neglected by the press or seemingly completely forgotten when, you know, you know, things happen where there's a missing person and it's all the rage and everyone. And then, sure. like, eventually people you know, move on. There's a new missing it person. It's more exciting, you know. And so this place, um, the site's free, but they do accept donations. If anyone's interested, it's www.charlieproject.org. And Charlie is spelled C-H-A-R-L-E-Y. Mm-hmm. So I totally think you should donate to that yes. maybe we'll donate That's some of our cause. um patreon for for next month to the charlie Ooh, project because i do think they're that very is a great fab idea i love that anyway as i was saying this woman has commented in multiple places online claiming to be jackie hewitt's sister-in-law and according to her the family 100 percent expects foul play of some kind huh uh, for several reasons. She says jackie would not have left the car or willingly agreed to go up that night to the mountains She also agrees that some of the boys would not have broken locks or taken food that didn't belong to them, even if their life depended on it, which it obviously did. But that Gary, if he was with them, absolutely had the capacity to make sure they were fed and warm. Yep. 
She claims that what the investigators have not shared with the media is that baby clothes and blankets were found in the car. Oh. Oh, yeah. And the woman with the baby. I forgot. Yeah. And shell casings were found near the car. Ooh. Definitely. So, yeah, the baby might perk your ears up. Do the account of Joseph, the man who had a heart attack, who claimed to see a group of men and a woman with a baby at some point in the night. There wasn't really room in the car to fit more people, but perhaps if they had pulled off of the side of the road, not crashed, but pulled off of the side of the road in order to help a woman with her baby who is stranded, which that shit happens all the time, like where people will pretend to be like a woman out in the cold or like a bod. I was going to say she's the bait for something more sinister. And then they get ambushed and, you know, I don't know. But it doesn't quite make sense because the car wasn't stolen the men were not shot and killed um although perhaps gary was because we don't know what happened to gary gary's never been found she also claims that there was a man who was going to turn in evidence against someone who had information about this case but that man died of an accidental drano overdose oh my and that there was a supposedly a guy who was going to speak to that man who had died of the accidental Drano overdose, that also had information that ended up having bullets fly through his house one night and almost killed his six-year-old girl, and then all of a sudden he didn't have any information. Okay, well, (laughs) this is just getting hella fishy, actually. I know. She claimed that one of these boys, she didn't say which one, had a sister with a baby and a very angry ex-boyfriend who had told other people in his life that he wanted, quote-unquote, payback for the breakup. And she also said in 1978 there was a man the police didn't even question who was known as the town bully who had reports of bullying these these guys, the um, the Yuba County Five specifically. Aww. And uh, yeah, she said she claims the boys would not have willingly driven their car up a snow-covered road and left it to walk into the mountains unless they were scared of something or they were forced yeah. to. I mean, that's what I've been thinking this entire time, and I'm actually happy that someone is, like, still speaking out about this case so many years later because, yeah, it is so easy for people to just be like, okay, well, they didn't have the capability to handle this situation, they drove off the road, they froze to death, whatever. But no, it sounds very much like someone was in the car either, like, pointing a gun to their head and forcing them to go somewhere, or they were being kind to a stranger they saw on the side of the road and were, like, lured even further up into the mountain or whatever yeah like it it does not sound like they made any of these choices on their own Mm -hmm. it that does not make sense for any of the things that you've told me especially when you think about how excited they were for the game they had the next day they were so pumped and they loved basketball and the thing is, is like, maybe you think like, oh, well, maybe one of them said like, we can drive up this mountain and it would be fun and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, it was 10 o'clock. They had to get home and get some sleep. They had a game the next day. They were so excited for it. They right. been pre- They wouldn't be taking this late it. night adventure. No, they wouldn't have gone up there. So honestly, nothing about this makes sense to me. And I can't even, I can't even fathom what happened. No. I mean, and it's sad we that we probably will never know, mm-hmm. but it I think everything points to foul play, which just makes yeah. it so so sad. I mean, all of these disappearance cases are very depressing obviously because in every situation family is losing their loved ones and basically doesn't have the closure that they want because there's so much 
mystery around it. But like in this case, these were people that were clearly taken advantage of. Yeah. And like somebody saw what they thought was a weakness and jumped on it and led to these poor men suffering for what sounds like a very long amount of a time. time. And that is so sad. And it's Ugh, just, I just don't, I just don't understand why. Like they didn't have anything to steal. No. And they didn't. And nothing was stolen. Nothing was stolen. The car wasn't taken. The car's just sitting there. It just seems cruel. Yeah. Someone with a lot of hate in their heart mm-hmm. just decided to take it out on these guys. Horrible. Horrible. And very strange about Gary, too, yeah, that we still just Gary? have no idea. Where did he end up? Ay, ay, ay. Ay, ay, That's indeed. a rough one. Yeah. It's a rough one, but I mean, Sorry a good to one to on that one. talk about. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah. was one. I had that on my list from like season two. Um, I had just read a little blurb about it and I was like, I want to learn more about that. And I put it on a list and I just never got to it. And for whatever reason, this time I was um, I was thinking like it was good for an Unsolved Mysteries episode. And then I saw I typed in like missing persons cases and this came up and I was like, wait, I thought they found them. And then I realized like one of them has never been found. And it's kind of strange that it's the one who people kind of felt weird about. You know what I mean? Like kind of felt was a little fishy. Sure. Certainly, though, if he was in the um, if he was in the the shed or the whatever, the place with Ted Uh and Ted was found like wrapped up and with a candle burning next to him, you'd think that like he was taking care of Ted, but also like, why wouldn't he start a fire? Like there, right. it just doesn't make sense. Like why wouldn't he do more to help? Yeah. There's still just so many questions. Like why did he only have a sheet, but had like no socks or shoes on? Nobody started a fire. No one was feeding him. Why was this man starving? Yeah. It's like you, if you were in there with him, you were not doing a good job being a caregiver. Mm-hmm. So. But like I said, like he was an extremely capable person while he was taking his medication. Yes. And I'm sure he didn't bring his pills to the game. Right. They didn't think they were going to go on this long yeah. evening trip up the mountain. So, yeah, I'm sure if he wasn't on his meds and especially if it was like if they were thrown into the situation, he had to stop cold turkey. I'm sure something really rough could have happened. So that's a bummer. Uh... Huge bummer. Sorry, <laughs> Sorry everybody. Everyone. But very interesting story at the same time, yeah. even though it's very depressing. Yeah. But that is all the time we have this week for Keep It Weird. Thank you guys so much for listening to our show. We actually aren't sure what we have in store for you next week because I'm about to leave for a trip home to see my parents. But if you follow us on social media at Keep It Weirdcast, um, we will keep you up to date on uh, info of what we are covering week to week. Yes. If you enjoy our show, please head over to iTunes or the Apple Podcast app and give us a five-star review if you really love our show so 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 much and you want to support us financially head over to patreon.com slash keep it weird podcast and donate one five or ten dollars to the show once or set it up to donate monthly and uh you'll have access to two bonus episodes a month a newsletter full of cool and creepy things discounts on merch and shout outs on our show um you can also hit up etsy.com Slash shop slash keep a weird podcast to buy yourself a t-shirt, tank top, hoodie, or sweatpants and represent your favorite podcast wherever you go. And don't <laughs> go in the woods. The pause, 
I was gonna say last episode we both were talking about Bodies water, water being terrifying, and now we're talking about mountains, mountains and woods. Just avoid them at all uh, costs. So don't go swimming and don't go hiking yeah. and stay indoors at all times. Just stay inside. <laughs> Just stay home. Lock stay. your doors. <laughs> Stay home. It's the only way you know you won't get murdered. Just We're stay just... home and listen to us. Listen to our voices. Oh, that's true. We'll keep you warm yeah. and snuggly. And keep it weird. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> keep it weird. The keys were missing, suggesting uh, that they were taken with the men when they left the with the intention of inter- oh my gosh hello <laughs> the keys were missing 